pray. Come Holy Spirit, fill our hearts. We know that it's your great desire to glorify the Son by taking from Him and applying it to our lives. And we pray this morning that we would see Him clearly, that we would be those who trust more dearly in Him. We ask, Father, that your Spirit would abide with us not only this morning, But as we go forward from here, we recognize that we can go through the motions today. We can open your word and we can read it and we can speak about it. But unless your spirit is at work, then we labor in vain. And so make this time profitable for our upbuilding in the Lord Jesus, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture passage this morning is Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 33, and you'll find that on page 844 of the Pew Bible. This is a a well-familiar passage. It's one of the highlights of the gospel, and it is where Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ. So read with me now, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 8. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Last week, Sally and I walked into Lowe's. We've walked into Lowe's many times over our marriage. This is the third time we've entered into a house renovation project. And as we walked in, we looked at each other and we took a deep breath and said, are we really doing this all over again? We went around the store and picked out plumbing fixtures and we looked at tile and laminate flooring and various things and You know, we could look at those things, and though we agree on many occasions, sometimes we look at that and say, do you really like that? Or are you sure you don't like this? Because this looks great to me. We have a a filter, you might say, of our preferences, things that we like and appreciate. You might think of the old uh, Rorschach test, the ink blots. Somebody might look at it and see a butterfly. might look at it and see a washing machine. We look at the world differently. We look at 
uh, objects in the world. We look at truth statements. We look at people differently and come to different conclusions. And we don't just do it about things like art that we can have an opinion about. We also do it about facts as well. Maybe you've been in an argument with someone and they say something to you like, you said this. And you respond by saying, but I said that. And you begin to argue over the fact that you did or did not make a certain statement. Or maybe even in a Bible study or a Sunday school class, may verbalize it or you may just think it instead. That's not what I think this text says. That's not what I think God is revealing to us here in this particular passage. And that dynamic of looking upon life, looking upon God, looking upon ourselves, and seeing things differently is at work all throughout the Gospel narratives. And in particular here in the Gospel of Mark, we see people asking the question about Jesus, about who is this man? We thought back in chapter 2 when men lowered down a friend who was a paralytic and Jesus forgave his sins. And people wondered, who could forgive sins other than God? Who is this man? Or when Jesus met with sinners in their homes and the scribes and the Pharisees asked the question, who is this that eats with sinners? Or do you remember in the boat when the storm came up and Jesus calmed the storm and the disciples asked, who is this that even silences the wind and the waves? The question about who is Jesus runs through the Gospel of Mark and really gets at the heart of Mark's purpose in the Gospel. You remember verse 1 of chapter 1? The beginning of the Gospel of the Son of God. From the very beginning, he reveals who Jesus is, but he wants to see how other people respond to Jesus and if they can come to the same conclusion by looking upon the facts. And they see Jesus' ministry of healing, of restoring people, of performing miracles, and they listen to his teaching and sometimes come to very different conclusions about who Christ is. Until we come to a high point in the gospel and we see Peter confessing Jesus to be the Christ. And as we go on all the way to the end, what we find in chapter 15 after the crucifixion, we hear from a Roman soldier, surely this man is the son of God. And so the gospel of Mark, Mark's purposes is to get us to see Jesus clearly, to understand Him, that we might confess too, surely this man is the Son of God, just as the Roman soldier did as well. Now this concept of vision and clear sight is prominent in this particular chapter, chapter 8. You remember from last week, verse 18, Jesus asked the question, as the disciples proved to be very dull spiritually and not understand. He says, having eyes, do you not see? Do you not yet see the truth about who I am? And here we also find in this particular passage we've read that there's a blind man who comes to Jesus and people are begging Jesus to heal him. 
It's a very odd account. He took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. He spits on his hands and places them on the man's eyes and says, now do you see anything? And of course the man doesn't see things quite clearly and Jesus touches him again. It's a very odd occurrence. What what could it mean? Well, I think we need to explore what Jesus' purposes are for his disciples in this particular section of Mark. And then we'll come back to that and get a better understanding of it. Well, the cross is just a few months away, probably less than six months away at this point. The, the greatest crisis in the disciples' life and in Jesus' life is now looming large over them and casting a long shadow. And the question is, what do the disciples believe? Are they with me or not? And Jesus is going to draw that out of them. The first thing what we see Jesus doing here is testing, testing the disciples' vision. Verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. That's actually a, a place to the north, directly to the north of Bethsaida where they were. It's a, it's a very pagan place. He takes them away from the people of God to Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Jesus is asking a very natural question to the disciples. After all, remember, he's already sent them out two by two to go out ministering in his name among the people of Israel. They've gone out to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and to preach the message about Jesus. And so it's almost as though Jesus is now taking a survey among his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Sort of like a politician might take a poll. What's, what's my popularity level? What are people saying about me? What do they think about my particular policies that I've come up with? And the disciples give various answers. They told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And so here the people are responding by saying, well, Jesus, they, they think that you're a prophet. And not only a prophet, but a, a preparatory figure. Because the prophets of the Old Testament were ones who were to prepare the way for the Lord, especially John the Baptist, who was to come in the same spirit of Elijah, preaching the same message of repentance to prepare the people of God to actually receive the Son of God. And so the people recognize something special about Jesus, that there's something of God in Jesus but yet they don't quite have good vision to look upon him through, you might say, the complete lenses of the Old Testament to see who the Messiah truly was to be. And so they only think of him as a prophet. They have respect for him, but only as a prophet. And there's a lesson in that to us, I think, as well, is that you can speak the truth very clearly, you can demonstrate the truth in a very evident and clear way, and people still will not see. If you've ever been a Sunday school teacher, you know this to be true. You teach a lesson, the text is plain, and yet there doesn't seem to be any way in which it's registering in people's hearts 
and minds. And maybe it struck the disciples too as they answered the question, oh, people aren't seeing Jesus clearly. We've gone out on a mission and yet people still don't understand who Jesus is and they see him as a prophet. Now, this question is a fairly safe question. Who do other people say that I am? And I think what Jesus was doing is really setting them up for a greater question. It's sort of like going to an eye doctor and he says, now read the first line for me. E, A, D, very easy. Now read the bottom line for me. Not quite so easy. And the second question that he asked is a more difficult question. Verse 29, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter responds, you might say, on behalf of the rest of the disciples, you are the Christ. And Matthew adds for us, the Son of God. Peter gets it right in one sense. He's confessing Jesus with the proper title. But the question is a probing question, isn't it? You see, it doesn't matter what your parents think about Jesus. It doesn't matter what your friends think about Jesus. It doesn't matter what the culture thinks about Jesus. Jesus is asking you and he's asking me this question. Who do you say that I am? The world may say all kinds of things. Your friends may have preconceived notions of just about who Jesus is. Maybe they respect him. Maybe he is a prophet. Maybe he's a good man. Maybe he is somebody to follow and emulate. But the question is, who do you say that he is? It's giving them a great opportunity to profess faith in him. This is a great opportunity that Jesus gives to them. To move from being passive to being active people who lay hold of Jesus in faith. Moving them from talking about what everybody else thinks to getting them to verbalize what they think is true about Jesus. You know, faith is a choice that everyone has to make. And sometimes it can be difficult here the disciples reveal that no one else really believes in Jesus as the Messiah. And what is he doing? He's calling upon them to make the difficult choice of going against the grain, of going against what everybody else thinks. And sometimes we're called upon to do the same thing. Who do you say I am when everybody else says something different? And that's the question that Jesus has, not only for his disciples here in chapter 8, but for everyone who comes in contact with him. Who do you say that I am? You know, there's an acceptable level of respect for Jesus in our culture, isn't there? You can speak about Jesus, and sometimes people get angry, but for the most part, people have a, a level of respect for him thinking of him as a good man. But don't be too radical about Jesus. Let's have a little bit of religion. Maybe we'll go to church on some occasions. Maybe I'll go on Easter, I'll go on Christmas, 
but let's don't get too radical about following Jesus, of making him the defining point of my whole life. I'll have Jesus on the side, but the rest of my life I'm going to live for myself, and I'm going to set the agenda for how I live my life. Here, Jesus is moving his disciples away from that kind of passivity to say, we believe you to be the Christ, the Son of God. And our whole lives want to be oriented around you. And Jesus is very pleased with the progress of the disciples. In fact, Matthew records for us that Jesus says to Simon, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you because you have confessed the truth that the Father has revealed to you. And so Jesus is pleased with them. But you notice what he says in verse 30. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the same kind of enigmatic instructions that Jesus has been giving people. Now don't tell anyone that I am the Christ. Don't tell anyone that you have confessed me to be the Son of God. Why would he do that? Well, I think the answer comes in the next point that we see here. Because the second thing that Jesus is doing is not only testing our vision, but he's also exposing our misunderstandings. Verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now you notice who Jesus tells. He tells people who have faith. He tells people who, has fa who have faith. And they do have a level of faith in him. And so he is revealing to them the purpose of his mission and the reason for which he's come into the world. But it's interesting that Mark gives us a little bit of a note of commentary in verse 32. And he said this plainly. He said this plainly about the cross about his crucifixion, about the opposition that's going to continue to heat up and that one day he's going to die on the cross. He said it very plainly. Now, I think Mark may have added that little note because Peter is behind the writing of Mark's gospel and Peter at that point probably thought to himself, now we should have understood what Jesus was trying to tell us. He said it plainly. But we go on to read in verse 32, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter gets forceful with Jesus. He wants to manhandle Jesus. He's a little too self-assured about his relationship with Jesus. So he's going to take Jesus aside and straighten Jesus out. Jesus, that's not your mission. That's not how things are going to end. Let me tell you how things will end. And you see, Peter has just made the right confession, but he has no idea what it means. And he misunderstands exactly what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Because for Peter, it meant that Jesus would be the royal conqueror, the princely figure, who would come like the Son of Man, who's spoken of in Daniel chapter 7, who comes to the throne of the Ancient of Days and receives a, a kingdom without end. A rule and dominion that lasts forever and ever. 
And what Peter didn't understand was, yes, that would come, but it would only come because God would first have to conquer the greatest enemy. It's not the enemy from without. It's the enemy from within because the first enemy is sin. Jesus would first have to go to the cross and be crucified for us so that you and I could be freed from our bondage. But Peter didn't want that kind of Messiah. He wanted a Messiah who's going to make things right now. Who's going to bless my life now. Who's going to free me from all the difficulties in my life that I consider to be difficulties now. And he wanted a completely different Messiah, a completely different Savior than what Jesus is offering. And so he instructs them not to tell anyone because they really didn't know what it meant. And they would have done more damage by going out into the world and telling people Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God because they would have tacked on all of their baggage that they would carry with them about who Jesus is. They were not yet ready to go tell people about Jesus. And it wasn't until the gospel ends that Jesus says, now go. Now that you understand my mission, now that you understand what kind of savior I would be, now go and tell everyone. Unfortunately, like Peter, we can, uh, we can all pull Jesus aside and rebuke him. We could tell him that he's not, he's not the kind of savior that we really wanted. Every time we hide our sin and deny it, we are implicitly taking Jesus aside and rebuking him and saying, Jesus, I don't need you to die for that. Because there's nothing wrong with me. At other times, we rebuke Jesus because we just don't want his authority over our lives. And we pull him aside and say, now Jesus, I'm not willing to go there. And we misunderstand what it means to confess Christ as Messiah and Son of God. But those who trust in Jesus, you see, don't have the right to define our relationship with Jesus but actually, Jesus defines it for us, and he does it in two ways. One that we'll look at next week, he defines our place in the kingdom of God. And you see that in verses 34 through 38. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we'll take that up next week. But he also defines our relationship to him in another way by defining his place in our lives we're going to be with Jesus he's going to have to be the savior of our sinful hearts so that we no longer have the right to take him aside and rebuke him and say now Jesus I don't need you to die for that I need you to die for everything about me think of the best thing about you what's the best thing about you what's your best quality what's your best skill What's your best character trait? What do people praise about you? Do you know that Jesus has to die for that? It's still not good enough. It's still tainted with the ugliness and the corruption of sin. And we dare not tell Jesus, I don't need you to die for that. That part of my life is good enough. 
No, Jesus says, if you want me, you have to have me as I define my mission and my identity. That's why he goes on to tell Peter, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Get behind me. Why? Because if you walk in front of me, you'll be a stumbling stone to me as Matthew records for us. Because what is Peter doing? He's taking the place of Satan. When Satan came to Jesus and tempted him in the wilderness and offered him the kingdom without the cross, Peter's doing the same thing. Jesus, you don't need to die. That's not the kind of kingdom that you need to establish. And so Peter's standing in the place of Satan. And every time you and I Tell Jesus, I don't need you to die for that. It's as though we're a stumbling stone to him. And he says, get behind me. Because you don't understand what my mission really is. You have in mind the things of man. That is to say, you, you think of yourselves more highly than you ought. You think of yourselves as being better off than what you really are. And that the only kind of salvation you need is, is the kind of salvation that you define for yourselves. And not the kind of salvation that I'll define for you. I heard an interesting fact about the Hoover Dam uh, maybe about a year ago. I love interesting facts about things. And um, this was uh, about the building and construction of it. The Hoover Dam was actually constructed to last for 1,500 years. It will last until roughly around the year 3,400. But the most interesting thing to me is the fact that the time that it takes for the concrete to cure in the Hoover Dam will be 500 years from now. In other words, the moisture in the, in the concrete of the Hoover Dam is so far down and deep, it will take 500 years for it to work its way out. And in a way, that's a picture of our human heart. Our sin is so far down and deep. We need Jesus to die for things we don't even know about yet. That's the kind of Savior that we need. Push Jesus to the periphery of our lives is to declare we don't need him to die for our sins. Some people lack joy in the Christian life. Some people sense that Jesus is irrelevant to their lives. Okay, he's a, he's a good religious man. Or yes, I go to church on Sunday. What, what's the big deal? And there's no sense of joy. It's really because you've taken Jesus to the side and rebuked him and said, no, I don't need you. And I don't need you to be the kind of savior that you came to be. And so Jesus here not only tests the disciples' vision, but he exposes their misunderstanding. And then finally, he's going to clarify their vision. And if we go back here to this account of the blind man in Bethsaida, we read here that he took the blind man and by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see 
anything. These are odd actions by Jesus. It's almost as if Jesus is like a a modern-day doctor, eye doctor, let's say, who tries various lenses, and that one doesn't work. And so he asks the question, do you see anything yet? He has to try a, a different lens. I'm not sure that this case is one that really baffles Jesus as it appears to on the surface. It's not that it's too hard for Jesus. But you see, every miracle of Jesus is a sign. The question is, to whom is it a sign? Is it to the man? No, it's actually for the disciples. Remember, they're the ones that he asked the question, have you not eyes to see yet? Jesus is wanting to instruct and teach something to the disciples who make a good confession, but don't clearly understand their confession. And maybe they need Jesus to, in a sense, touch them a second time. Because that's what Jesus does with this man who doesn't see clearly. Men look like trees that are walking around. And Jesus touches him a second time. And then he sees clearly. And what we find here is Jesus really giving a, a parable to the church that though we might have some sense of vision about who Jesus is, it will take Christ himself to over time bless us with clearer vision about who he is. That's why Paul would pray for the churches. Think of his prayer in the book of Ephesians that he prays that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened or as his prayer is to the Colossian church that we might increase in the knowledge of God. Jesus is saying, look, unless you come to me that I might clarify your vision, you'll never see me rightly. And what a blessing that he does do that. You remember back in chapter 4 where Jesus is telling parables and he tells the parable of the sower. And he says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. To you has been given the secret. And what's the secret? It's that the Son of God has come in the flesh to save sinners like you and me. Friends, if Jesus is not leading you to a clear vision of who he is, if you're not hearing him say, do you see anything? Is it clearer now? That maybe he's never touched your eyes for the first time. And maybe that's what you need is for Jesus to come along and touch your heart so that you're able to see him clearly. The Olympics are about to wind up. You know that watching the Olympics, they do all these human interest stories. And of course, the commentators want to hype up certain athletes. And there's always great expectation on certain athletes. And they come into the Olympic Games, some of them having feeded off of their own press and believe the hype about themselves and expect that they're going to win the gold. And that was true, certainly, of some of our American athletes on one of the downhill ski runs, one of uh, the American athletes who is highly spoken of and expected to win gold. After her run, she was so excited that she hugged someone and said, now are you going to stay around for the medal ceremony? 
her expectation was, I've just won. I've just secured the gold. I've got this. And if we have a sense with Jesus that I've got this, I've got this Christianity thing under control. I've got a handle on Jesus. You think you have a handle on Jesus. It may just be that he doesn't have a handle on you. Maybe what you need to do is ask him, Lord, forgive me and give me clear vision that I might see you rightly. I don't know how many church kids I saw in college ministry who came off to college, thought well of themselves. I've got this Christianity thing together. I've got Jesus figured out. And before long, you see them drifting away. No longer involved in the church. No longer pursuing the Lord. No longer trusting Him. No longer seeking to love them with all their hearts. Because they foolishly thought, I've got a handle on this. And I've seen it with adults in the church too. who are very comfortable about their relationship with Jesus. I see Jesus clearly. I know who He is. I know what kind of savior he is. And it's for people like that that Paul gives a great warning in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Have you tested yourself? Do you see Jesus clearly? And you know what the great promise is for those who confess him as Christ? Is that one day, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see in a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Even though we don't have a clear vision of Jesus now and never will fully in this life, one day we will. One day we will. How gracious Jesus is to take fools who would pull him aside and rebuke him and seek to tell him, now here is who you are and here is what your mission is. And he would very gently and graciously put his hands upon our hearts so that we would be able to see him more clearly. And do you know what the test is that you're seeing Jesus more clearly? Let me encourage you to read Revelation 4 and 5 later on today. This great vision of gospel of John being caught up into heaven. Where the messenger says, come up here and I will show you something. And what he saw was the lamb upon the throne. And there are these creatures who are worshiping the lamb and proclaiming his glory. And at the end of chapter 5, we read that the, the elders fell down and worshipped. That's a picture of what it looks like to see Jesus clearly. That our mouths are shut. We're no longer rebuking Him. We're no longer telling Him how He ought to run His universe. We're no longer telling Him what kind of events He ought to bring into our lives. We're no longer telling Him what kind of Savior 
he needs to be. But our mouth is silenced and we fall before him and we simply worship. And we say, whatever you say, Jesus, whatever you say, I'll follow you. I'll follow you. Is that your confession today? Jesus is that kind of Christ and that kind of Savior that you would fall on your knees before him and worship him. Let's pray that that would be true of every one of us. Heavenly Father, forgive us that we want to define Christ for ourselves. Cleanse us and we pray that you would give us new eyes to see all the time. A clearer vision of who our Savior is. So that we would no longer rebuke him but fall before him. And praise him for his glorious grace. In this we pray in Jesus name. Amen.